Good evening. It's good to have you here tonight. I hope you have your Bible with you or some kind of a device on which you can read some scripture. We've been going through the book of Acts on our Sunday evenings as we work our way through the various books of the Bible with our goal of covering every book. An ambitious goal. And if you don't want to wait for all of those books in order on Sunday nights, then you can sign up for a GLBI class and cover several at once. This is a shameless ad. We had the opportunity this summer in just a few weeks to have Dr. Burkett with us, and he is going to be teaching on the historical books of the Old Testament in June a modular class for one week. The information is back there on the table. I would encourage you to sign up for that. Uh, If you had and already done that, we wouldn't have had to take time for some of what I'm going to say tonight because you'd already know it. If Also, if you had signed up for my Old Testament culture or New Testament culture classes, you would have also had this, and we wouldn't have to say it. But because a few of you did not sign up for those two classes, we're going to give some background tonight. Are you getting the impression that I think it would be good for you to take a class? All right, good. We're communicating then. Tonight our assignment is to continue through from Acts chapter 6 through 9. And to continue some context, I'm going to ask you to turn with me for a couple of minutes to Acts chapter 6. We're actually going to spend most of our time in Acts chapter 8, but we're taking... a springboard from Acts chapter 6, which is going to take us back into the Old Testament uh, eventually. You will remember in Acts chapter 6, Pastor Steve shared with us this first part of the chapter where there was a problem in the church at Jerusalem, and that is as they were sharing uh, in the food supplies for the widows, some of the widows were being overlooked. Six, chapter 6, verse 1, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. In the New Testament era, there were uh, two groups of people within the Jewish culture. There were Jews who had retained and maintained a very strict patriotic, loyal sense of Judaism. They were proud to be Jews. They didn't want to be anything but Jews. They were Hebrews of the Hebrews. Paul was one of those kinds of Jews. They wanted to use the Hebrew language. They wanted their children to learn Hebrew. They wanted their children to read the Old Testament Torah, the law in Hebrew. They wanted their children to hear Hebrew in the synagogue. Then there was another group of Jews... And since Israel had been conquered by Alexander the Great in 330-something B.C., and Alexander the Great brought Greek culture and language to the whole Mediterranean world, the Eastern Mediterranean world, there were a lot of Jews who began to assimilate to the Greek influence of that era. They began to use the Greek language because it became a trade language, And a lot of the Jewish people were trading internationally at that time, and they were able to speak with people from other parts of the world in Greek. They wanted their children to have a Greek type of education. They were still Jews, 
and they held to some form of Judaism, but they also accommodated to the Greek influence of their culture. Now, this went on for over 300 years before the pages of your New Testament open up in the book of Matthew. Now, 300 years of influence is a long time. Our country isn't even that old as a political entity, and you and I don't speak with the British accent anymore. We don't even understand some of their vocabulary or their weddings. <laughs> as beautiful as they might be. So, so there was this split in Judaism. There were the very Jewish Jews and there were the Hellenistic Jews. And here in the church, as well as things are going, there's also the element of prejudice that's already existent in the church. I bring this out tonight because by the time we get to chapter 8, we come face to face with Jewish prejudice. And we see what the grace of God can do to prejudice. It's a beautiful thing. Prejudice is an ugly thing. But what the grace of God can do is a beautiful thing. And so here's this schism between Hellenistic Jews and the Hebrew Jews, the Jewish Jews and the not-quite-so-Jewish Jews, and there's this tension in the church. So what do they do? They are instructed to seek out among themselves seven men, verse 3, of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, that they can put in charge of making sure that the Hellenistic Jewish widows get their share of the daily provisions. They choose several men. They're listed in verse 5, and it's something very interesting to notice is they all have Greek names. The church sees the wisdom of appointing some Hellenistic Jews or perhaps converts from uh, the Gentile world and put them in charge of taking care of the Hellenistic Jewish widows. That's a wise move. But now something that we see then is that the writer of the book of Acts takes this list of seven men, and in verse 5, the first two of them are Stephen and Philip. And he uses that list as the outline for the next couple chapters of the book of Acts. Because the first thing he does after this event of electing these men is he tells us about Stephen and what happened to Stephen. And we all, we looked at that in chapter 6, the rest of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7 is Stephen preaching to the Jewish council and them accusing him of blasphemy and putting him to death at the end of chapter 7. Chapter 8 picks up with the next man in the list that's in chapter 6, whose name is Philip, and he begins in chapter 8 with a ministry beginning in verse 4 of chapter 8. And we, that's, we, we read this section, looked at this section a couple of weeks ago, very briefly. In chapter 8, verse 4, Philip, who's the second elected widow helper in the list of chapter 6. He's a preacher. He's an evangelist. So, verse 4 tells us that all who had been 
scattered because of the persecution, went about preaching the word. They went out gospelizing, good newsing the world wherever they went. As they went, wherever they went, wherever God planted them, we looked at that word scattered, it means to plant seed. So God planted the seed of the word throughout the Mediterranean world. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. Now, you and I read that as if it just is giving directions on a GPS. Just go down to this place, and that's all there is to it. But for any of you that have been students of the Word for a while, you are aware of the fact that Samaria has a special connotation. The area of Samaria and the city of Samaria both had a a special reference to an intensive prejudice and hatred that, there, that existed for several hundred years between the Jews and the Samaritans. Now, in, in, because of the fact that you may not all be as aware of why that prejudice was there, I want to take the time to have you go back with me to 2 Kings tonight. 2 Kings, in your Old Testament, obviously... <clears throat> In chapter 17. Now it would take us the whole hour to really do justice to this topic, but I at least want to point out the background to you. In the Old Testament, a thousand years before Christ, uh, David was the king of Israel. But even when David became the king of Israel, for the first seven years of his reign, he was only the king of the southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin. The rest of the tribes were not following David. It took several years before all of the nation became united with David as their king. And then for 30-some years, he reigned as the king of all of Israel. Solomon, his son, reigned over all of the nation of Israel. But because of Solomon's unfaithfulness to the Lord, because of his idolatry and his foolishness in certain things, uh, God told Solomon that after he died, the kingdom was going to be divided. And so after Solomon died, his son Rehoboam became the king of the southern couple of tribes, but the northern tribes rebelled and they They got their own king, Jeroboam. And so you had the northern tribes. And because of the fact that Jerusalem was in the southern territory, the king of the north, up in uh, Jeroboam, up in the northern part, he said, well, if if all of my people keep going down to Jerusalem to the temple to worship God, they're going to have a loyalty to Jeroboam in the south. So I'm going to establish a temple up here in the north, and we'll worship up here. So that's what they did. But along with that, Jeroboam and others introduced all kinds of idolatry and worshiping the the idols of the nations around them, all kinds of debauchery in the name of worship, and they brought incredible, incredible wickedness into the kingdom. This goes on for several hundred years. We come down to 2 Kings chapter 17, and in verse 6, in the ninth year of Hosea, or Hoshea, the king of Assyria, captured Samaria, the capital city of the northern kingdom, and he carried Israel away into exile to Assyria and settled them in Hala and Habor 
on the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. The Assyrian armies came in and wiped out the northern kingdom. They didn't kill everybody, but they, they killed many. They subdued the cities and the towns. They destroyed the defenses. They captured the city of Samaria, and they carried away almost 30,000 people from the city of Samaria and took them to other parts of the Assyrian kingdom. This was a policy of the Assyrian kings. When they conquered an area, they would take a big chunks of the population and move them somewhere else. So they were displaced people. And their loyalties were then split. They would, and then they would take other people from other places and bring them in there. And so you never, nobody really knew where they belonged. Nobody was settled. And there was less chance of people getting together in an uprising against their authority. So the northern Jews as of 722 B.C., are scattered across the northern part of uh, the Middle East. Now, we don't have time to go into everything here, but the other thing that he did is if you look at verse 24, the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Kutha and from Ava and from Hamath and Sepharvaim and settled them in the cities of where? Samaria in place of the sons of Israel. So they possessed Samaria and lived in its cities. So the king of Assyria brings foreigners, and he plants them in the northern area of Israel. Now, almost immediately, there's a problem. Verse 25, at the beginning of their living there, the non-Jews, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have carried away into exile in the cities of Samaria do not know the custom of the God of the land. So he has sent lions among them, and behold, they kill them because they do not know the custom of the God of the land. You see, they thought there was some specific God of this part of the area. And this was common. There's a God over here, and there's a God over here, and there's a God over here. Well, well, you settled us in an area, and we don't know who this God is, so you better find somebody who can tell us who this God is because he's really not doing, he, he's really mad at us. So the king of Assyria, verse 27, says, Take there one of the priests whom you have carried away into exile, and let him go and live there and teach them the custom of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away into exile from Samaria came and lived at Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the houses of the high places which the people of Samaria had made, every nation in their cities in which they lived. And as you read through this, you get down to realize that they then blended and mixed a form of worshiping the Lord with forms of worshiping all kinds of other gods, just like the northern tribes had done. Verse 27, they also feared the Lord and appointed for themselves priests for the high places who acted them in the houses of the high places. They feared the Lord and served their own gods. Scratch my head, how does that work? It doesn't. They, they just made a blend of all these things that they've learned, and, and they made up a religion of idolatry mixed in with having a temple and saying we're praising Jehovah, but they had no idea truly who Jehovah was. 
This is the northern part of the land of Israel called the region of Samaria. And for hundreds of years, between your Old Testament and your New Testament, the northern part of the area is worshiping other gods. The Jews who have been loyal to the word are down in the area of Judah, and they have the temple, which was rebuilt under Ezra, and they have stayed faithful to the Torah. Now, that doesn't mean they're personally walking by faith, but they're keeping the rituals of the laws. Their hearts are dead, but they're keeping the rituals of the laws. They're keeping the language, the Jewishness. They're Jewish Jews, okay? There's also pockets up in the north around the Sea of Galilee, a more rural area, but a, a fairly large cities by the New Testament times, and they typically are very conservative Jews in the north. So you have conservative Jews in the north around Galilee. You have conservative Jews down in the south around Jerusalem. And in between, you have this despised group of mixed blood, half-breed, non-Jewish, Gentile, idolatrous, worshiping ugh, group. The prejudice between the Jews and the Samaritans was so bad by the time of the New Testament that it wasn't safe for a Jew to go through Samaria. And it wasn't safe for a Samaritan to go through Judah. Now, sometimes people did in groups, but you weren't guaranteed to get somewhere without being mugged. Such was the prejudice, the hatred of these two groups of people. Have you noticed in human history, it doesn't take much for us to get prejudiced? It doesn't take much at all. Where I grew up, and I'm going to say, I'm going to use some words here, and I, I mean absolutely no offense. I'm trying to find some illustrations. Where I grew up in Pennsylvania, we told Pollock jokes. People picked on the Polish population. When I visited missionaries in France, the French people were telling Belgian jokes. They picked on the Belgians. My relatives in Michigan, they tell jokes on the Swedes. In some parts of the South, if you speak like a Yankee, it's probably not a good thing for you. There's some parts of Cleveland you won't go to. That's probably wise. We are, a, we are a sinful, wretched body of people that finds every reason we can to dislike somebody else. I'm speaking of the human race as a whole. And it's ugly. It's sin. It's godless wherever it happens. But it was in the disciples. You remember how shocked they were when Jesus decided they were going to go through Samaria? You see, Samaria is between Galilee in the north and Jerusalem in the south. Sorry about that. Every Jew that 
traveled to Jerusalem for the holidays, if, well, we all know that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. So why not just go straight down? Well, because that's where Samaria is. So they would go over to the Jordan River and come down and then hike up the 15 miles up the hill to Jerusalem. Or they would go down by the coast and walk all the way around and come up through the hills from the Philistine coast and up to Jerusalem. They would go all the way around Samaria. Okay? That's like going around Pennsylvania to get to New York. When Route 80 goes right through the middle, that's long enough. Okay? And, and, and when, the, when Jesus told the Jew, uh, his disciples in verse uh, in John chapter 4, we're going through Samaria, they're like, what? And then they get to Samaria, and it's almost lunchtime, and the disciples go see if they can find something for lunch, and they come back, and Jesus is talking to a Samaritan. That's bad enough, but he's talking to a woman. Which is bad enough, but he's talking to a woman of ill repute. Doesn't he know what he's doing? And, and, and they're just, they're just all worked up. But we all know that there was a tremendous transformation of grace that occurred in the lives of the disciples, the apostles. We look at the difference between impetuous Peter and Peter who's so sure of himself and so confident that he's going to follow the Lord. He'll follow him to death. He'll fight to the death. And then he denies him three times. And he finally learns a lesson of humility and dependence. And we find him in Jerusalem, not in pride, but in obedience, standing up and preaching to thousands. He's a transformed man by the grace of God. And that's what we find in Acts chapter 8, if you will go back with me to that passage. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria. Now, as far as we know, up to this point, no one else has gone, after the church began in Acts 2, no one else has gone to Samaria to preach. Now, maybe they did, but the scriptures don't record it. Here's an interesting observation in this text. It wasn't one of the Jewish apostles who first went to Samaria. It was one of the Hellenistic Jews who first went to Samaria. Someone who perhaps knew what it was to feel prejudice, who overcame prejudice, and went down to Samaria to share the gospel with the Samaritans. Well, we looked last time at the success of Philip's ministry in the city. According to verse 12, as Philip was preaching and doing great works, miraculous works, verse 12, when they believed, Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even a magician named Simon gets saved. So Philip opens the door of the gospel to the city of Samaria. He crosses the boundary of prejudice. Now, we all know that the book of Acts is a history of the geographic spread of the gospel. The gospel went across national lines. It went across geographic boundaries. But this text is telling us that the gospel crosses cultural boundaries. 
the gospel crosses all boundaries. There is no boundary known to man that the gospel cannot cross. And I'm so glad for that because I'm not a Jew. And if the gospel had only stayed in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2 and only for the Jews, I would never hear it. And neither would most of you. But the gospel has spread through the kingdom, the Roman Empire, and it is spreading across cultural boundaries. Now we continue to see the grace of God at work in verse 14. We pick up the story as the apostles hear the word that the Samaritans have received the gospel and responded to it. It is to their credit, and I think, again, a manifestation of the grace of God, that they didn't just throw up their hands and say, how horrible. Why would they do that? Nope. They simply dispatched two messengers, Peter and John, to go. And in verse 15, they come and they pray for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. These two men, remember John? who wanted to call down lightning upon those who opposed. I mean, this is one of the sons of thunder. This was a guy who wanted to zap everybody that didn't agree with him. And here he is coming down to Samaria, and the first thing it says that they do is pray that all of these people will receive the same Holy Spirit that they themselves have received on the day of Pentecost. These are two changed men, Peter and John. These are men who see that the gospel is doing something far greater than anything they had ever seen before. And so they are willing to go down and cross that cultural boundary and be a part of what the Holy Spirit is doing there and acknowledge that the Holy Spirit has himself reached across these boundaries and opened people's hearts to the word. And so they go and they pray that these people would also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because the explanation in verse 16, he had not yet fallen upon any of them. A reference back to the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit descended as promised by Christ. He said, if I go to my Father, I will send another comforter to you. And the Holy Spirit came upon them. And the manifestation was the cloven tongues of fire and the speaking in languages that they had never studied. You're all familiar with that, I think. Well, these people hadn't received that. And here in these early chapters of Acts, in order to make it clear that this is all the same ministry, it's all the same Spirit of God, it's all the same message, the Lord sends the apostles who were at Pentecost to be the ones that are used to bring the Holy Spirit upon this group. And we'll see it again later in another place. The Holy Spirit could have come down upon these people in his sovereign manifestation without the apostles being there. But part of the theme of the book of Acts is that 
the gospel is spreading. It's all the same gospel. It's all the same church. It's all the same body of Christ, even though it crosses all these boundaries. It's not that the Jews have one kind of salvation and the Samaritans have another kind of salvation. And we get down to chapter 10 and Cornelius is going to have yet a different kind of salvation. No, this is all the same spirit at work. And that's what's going on here. And that is why it was so important for Peter and John to be there. This is identifying this group with the same apostolic Holy Spirit given ministry that we found back in Acts chapter 2. So picking up again with verse 16. For he, the Holy Spirit, had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They'd been baptized, but they hadn't received the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit yet. So then, verse 17, the apostles, they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. In biblical times, both Old Testament into the New Testament, the idea of laying your hands on someone was a, a method of identification. Do you remember in the Old Testament when the people would bring a lamb for a sacrifice? They didn't just bring the lamb and shoo it in to be with the priest and the priest killed it. No, the person would put their hand on the lamb. And that was saying, this lamb is dying for my sins. It's, this is, I'm identifying with this lamb. This sacrifice is for me. And so it's that identification. And we find here the, the apostles are laying their hands on these people to identify that apostolic authority, that apostolic ministry, the same Holy Spirit who came on the apostles was coming upon them. It wasn't, it wasn't magical. It wasn't a magic touch. It was an identification with these people and the same ministry. So there's this identification, and then there's this reception. They receive the Holy Spirit. They receive the Holy Spirit. Now, it doesn't say that there was any of the same manifestations of the Spirit that we saw in Acts chapter 2, which is... Interesting in today's culture with Pentecostalism. Um, and just like when you and I are saved, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within us, there's no sign. There's no outwardly miraculous thing that goes on. There's no change in appearance. It's not like we can look at one another and see whether someone has the Holy Spirit or not. It simply happened, and we're told in the Scriptures that they received the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a, an account about Simon in verse 18. We're going to skip that. Come down to verse 25. So, when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, this is Peter and John, they're continuing to testify, they're speaking the word of the Lord, then they started back to Jerusalem. So they leave Samaria, and they head home for Jerusalem, but we're told one more thing. They were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Peter and John, they get it. They get it. The gospel is for everybody. Well, at least for Samaritans. We get to chapter 10, he's not quite ready to go all the way to the Gentiles. The Lord has to work on him for that. Okay, But, but he's willing to cross this boundary. 
and they see the Spirit of God at working. And, and so this was not only to identify and verify to the Samaritans that they were receiving the same thing as the apostles. This really was also to teach the apostles that the Holy Spirit was doing the same thing for Samaritans as he had done for them. This is a two-way learning experience here for the apostles and the church. Now, we have a little bit of ground to cover yet tonight, so I'm only going to take a, a minute to mention Simon in verses 18 through 24. <clears throat> Remember, Simon was a magician. He had made a business out of this, and he sees these amazing, miraculous things happening in the church. So he comes to the apostles, and he's, he says, Wow, how much money can I pay you to get the power to lay my hands on somebody and have the Holy Spirit come down? And like, Simon, Simon, you don't get it. You're missing the whole point. This is not a business venture. And they rebuke him. And he receives that rebuke. There's some discussion about where Simon is spiritually. I think he was truly a believer from what the text says earlier in the chapter. But he, was, he still had some things he had to learn, like a few of the rest of us. You know, we don't, we don't get it all in the first week or the first 50 years. We, we just need a little more time to continue getting it and understanding. And so I, I think uh, that Simon was probably a believer. Um, he, was, he was misunderstood this and jumped to a conclusion, and he was rebuked for it, but he seemed to have received that rebuke and asked for uh, forgiveness. So this then has crossed the bridge to Samaria. We come now to verse 26, and Philip is finished preaching at Samaria. I don't know if Philip realized he was finished preaching in Samaria. But when the angel of the Lord comes to you in verse 26 and says, get up and go south, then what do you do? Get up and go south. Don't you wish it was that easy sometimes? Lord, just sent me an angel to tell me. You know, it's probably not good because we would wrestle with that too. South, south, Lord, the angel said south. Lord, why south? Isn't that what we would do? No, you wouldn't. Okay, right. So get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. Uh, Jerusalem is up in the heights of the Judean ridge, and so to go anywhere from Jerusalem basically is downhill. So from Jerusalem down to Gaza. Recognize the name Gaza? Does that ring a bell? It should. Go down the road from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he did. <clears throat> and I, I, don't you love this story? He's traveling along, and along comes a chariot. An important chariot. Probably a fancy chariot. I mean, it's government property, after all. And here's a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. He's actually the treasurer, the queen's treasurer. Right, so this man is a trusted official of the Ethiopian kingdom. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship at the end of verse 27. He was a convert to Judaism. He is a man who had learned, perhaps through the influence of Jews who had migrated down to Egypt and other parts of the world, 
he had learned somehow about the God of Israel. And he was coming to Jerusalem to worship the God of Israel. There were people who came from all over the Roman Empire who were not Jews who came to Jerusalem to worship the God of Israel. And he was one of them. But he obviously didn't have a full understanding of the gospel because he's reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, it's interesting to me that he had a copy of the prophet Isaiah. It shows that he had, he had, he had spent some money on that rascal. A handwritten scroll of the book of Isaiah on leather parchment, perhaps on papyrus, but that cost him a little piece of change. So he's reading in the prophet Isaiah. Now, can you imagine trying to read the prophet Isaiah? Okay, I mean, think about it. There's no suspension system on a chariot. You got steel wheels and no suspension. You might have a padded seat. You've got to understand these things. I mean, you know, it's, doesn't that add something to the story? You know, we were cruising along in our climate-controlled car, reading our cell phone. A little bit different. He's reading Isaiah. And the Spirit says to Philip, go up and join this chariot. Go hop up on there. So he hears him reading the prophet Isaiah, and he says, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? Don't you love the way this, the Lord just sets this up? This is the providence of God. And, and I want you to take some time to meditate about this passage this week. The providence of God is with every believer. And God is bringing people in and out of your life according to his providence in the same way that he brought this man into Philip's life by his providence. It's no accident that you work with the people that you work with. It's no accident that you have the neighbors that you have. It's no accident that your appointment with the doctor is with the doctor that you have and that the receptionist is the person who is. There are no accidents. This is the providence of God. Now, in this case, to us, it's very obvious. Some days we have to simply take it by faith. This is the providence of God. God put me here for a purpose and a reason at this particular moment with this particular person. And so he basically invites Philip to come up. And don't you love it where he was reading? He's reading, he was led as a sheep to slaughter and as a lamb before its shearers is silent so he does not open his mouth. Who's this talking about? What an opening. What an opening to present Christ. So many of you know my wife, Meg, uh, who was a Roman Catholic for many years. And, and at one point, while she was still uh, in Roman Catholicism and didn't understand the gospel yet, she was at a, a wedding dinner, and there were, there were two people sitting across the table from her, a married couple who had left the Catholic Church because they had accepted Christ. And her family knew this, and it's like, boy, those people have really gone off the deep end, you know. But she was watching this couple over dinner and the love that they had for one another and the joy that they had in their hearts. And so, don't you love this? She says to them, what do you have that I don't have? 
Have you ever heard a better opening line? That's exactly what she said to the fellow across the table, and he proceeded to share Christ with her. It was still several years before she came to know the Lord. But you talk about an open door, and that's exactly what this man gives to Philip. So he says, please tell me, in verse 34, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or someone else? So Philip begins from this scripture and preaches Jesus to him. And you got to love this in verse 36, because back in verse 26, we learned that they're going through a desert area. And in verse 36, they come to some water. Providence of God. Providence of God. The interesting thing is, it's not only water, it's deep enough because in verse 38 it says, they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. So it's deep enough for them to go down in there and for him to get dunked. The providence of God at work. This is one of the passages that shows us that faith precedes baptism. Baptism is for those who have come to Christ, who have understood who Christ is, and have trusted Christ. So we see the providence of God at work. We see God has prepared this man's heart. God has planted the seed of the gospel in this man's life already because he's reading the book of Isaiah. And Philip happens to be sent there in time just basically to watch the fruit fall off the tree, to pick the fruit of salvation. Verse 39, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no longer. I would like to have seen the look on that man's face. I'd like to have seen the look on Philip's face when he ended up down in Azotus. Whoa. Time travel is possible. (laughs) Or whatever they call that, you know, teleporting or whatever they call it. It is possible. I don't suggest you try it, but it is possible. So we see the providence of God at work, and then Philip finds himself at Azotus, which is another name for Ashdod at that time. And by the way, the city of Ashdod is still called Ashdod, and it's still at Ashdod in Gaza, or just north of the Gaza Strip in Israel. And as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. The gospel is moving, 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 moving. God's instruction in Acts 1.8, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts. The gospel is going forward. The gospel is going outward. The gospel is crossing geographic boundaries, and the gospel is crossing the boundaries of prejudice. My friend, God calls you and I to cross all of those kinds of boundaries. Wherever there's a boundary, God calls us to cross it in some way. I do not know the history 
of the Ethiopian church over the centuries. But I do know that there has been, throughout church history, a church presence in the country of Ethiopia. Now, it is now a kind of a form of the Eastern Orthodoxy, a Coptic church kind of a, a ritualism, but it's still very active in the country of Ethiopia today. When Meg and I were in Israel about nine years ago, we got to uh, one of the sites on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And, and when you're uh, um, touring like that, you always hope that you don't pull into a parking lot crammed full of buses. Right? If one bus, two buses, okay. That, that's what you want to see. Okay, so we pull in, and there's almost nobody in the parking lot. We're starting to get out of the bus, and, and then a whole bunch of buses pull in. A whole bunch. And, and we played tag with this group of buses most of the time that we were in Israel. And it was a group of people from Ethiopia. Several hundred of them. And they were on a tour to come and see Israel. I don't know what this man's influence was, but it's hard to think that it didn't have something to do with the spread of the gospel in that part of the land. Even if that is now changed and not true to the gospel like it once was. In the providence of God, God is going to bring you into someone's life, maybe this week, to plant a seed, to share a verse, to share the whole plan of salvation, to encourage them to read the word, in some way to minister to them spiritually. And you and I have no idea what all God is going to do with that. But it could get really big. And hopefully, it will go on into several generations long after we are gone. One man doing what God told him to do. He crosses a cultural boundary that no one had crossed, and he reached a nation that no one had reached. One man, Philip. Acts chapter 8. Next week, Lord willing, if the trumpet doesn't sound first, we will go into Acts chapter 9. I would encourage you to read it. I trust God will enrich us as we study. Can you stand with me? And we will dismiss with prayer. Lord, thank you for faithful people in the past who shared the word of God, who preached it, who taught it, who wrote it down, who taught classes, who evangelized. Down through the centuries, Father, we are here only because of the faithfulness of men and women in the past. But we are also here because of your grace and your mercy. So, Father, help us to be like Philip, instruments of grace, instruments who will plant the seeds of the word 
as you scatter us out into the communities around Lake County, Father, use us as your servants, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.